Hello, this is Sam and Tim from the Classical Music Pod. In today's episode, we bend time with Johannes Brahms. Talk to one of the world's leading clarinetists and number one Jamiroquai fan, Julian Bliss. And hear the greatest voice of all time singing in the bathroom. Sam, I know you can tell me which UK cathedral was the first in the country to admit girl choristers. Unless I'm much mistaken, that's Salisbury Cathedral. I think there are some like little disputy things, but basically it's Salisbury Cathedral, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1991. Just to clarify, for listeners who aren't au fait with the concept, choristers are school-age children. They sing in prestigious cathedral choirs, usually while attending an adjoining fee-paying school for which they receive a scholarship. Not in all cases, but that's the general thrust. Any idea how far the chorister tradition stretches back? Ooh. Well, I think Guido D'Arezzo is talking about choral scholars in about the year 1000, isn't he? But that's in Italy. I don't know about the UK. Is it maybe a Henry VIII thing? Does he sort of get... Maybe Cromwell divvies up some money? I don't know the king for this date. The date that's touted online is 1110. Who was the monarch? Don't know the monarch, but it was supposed to be at Wells Cathedral. Ah, oh, good for them. Good for them. And can you tell me which UK Anglican cathedrals still do not accept school-age girl choristers? Ooh, poser. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in London, so that rules out St Paul's and... Uh, um... Well, you're actually wrong, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sorry. St Paul's does not accept school-aged girl choristers at the moment. They do have older girl choristers uh, or older lay clerks the other two are chichester and hereford but even among the cathedrals that do girls are often given a raw deal Uh, those at truro for example can only join from the age of 13 rather than eight as Mm. boys do and the girls at christchurch oxford don't have access to scholarships as the boys do these are by no means the only cathedrals where this is the case they just happen to be the first examples i came across but The question we need to ask is, can this be fair? And if not, why in 2021 is it not being addressed? Mm. I contacted Chichester, Hereford and St Paul's to ask whether they plan to admit school age girl choruses in the future. Only Hereford has responded so far. I was told at Hereford Cathedral plans to introduce a girl's top line alongside the existing boy choristers are under active consideration. And we are working through the financial and logistical challenges. Sam, as somebody fairly well ensconced in the UK choral scene, 
How does that response sit with you? And what might those financial and logistical challenges be? Uh, well, first up, nice investigative journalism, Tim. Keep that going. Um, and there are no doubt people with more skin in the game than me who will be better informed. So if they've got corrections on anything I'm about to say, then please do get in touch. The financial considerations will be manifest at the moment for every church. Pretty much any institution that does anything is thinking about uh, their finances. But I think this is compounded by the fact that a lot of the the girl chorister model that's been adopted has been to add an additional girls choir so rather than integrating then <laughs> rather than integrate um and that of course means raising a whole lot of new money okay well why and do they have to be separate i think that's a very good question tim <laughs> there <laughs> i mean i was i was running a choir for mixed uh, boys and girls this morning aged or as i call them children uh, in year seven this morning and they were having a great time they mm. didn't seem to worry about the fact that there were other people in the room who might have different chromosomes from them they were just having a wonderful time singing well i'm going to pull up a quick tweet or part of a tweet by the conductor paul mccreesh he said boys need safe spaces to sing and not to feel intimidated by brackets older girls um I, I, I huge respect for everything that Paul McCreech does. I think on this matter, I disagree. If boys feel that they need to be safe from girls, then it, you know to express the vulnerability of singing, then what are we telling boys girls are, and what are we telling everyone singing is? Uh, if it's something joyful, sure we want to share the joy, and we wanted to share it with anybody we come into contact with. The fact that we're sort of othering girls feels quite odd to me and obviously it becomes more difficult as boys voices start to move but then girls voices start to move you go to Halle Youth Choir and watch someone like Stuart Overington run the Halle Youth Choir and you've got boys and girls singing very merrily alongside each other from sort of 9 to 18 yeah well there is an argument you slightly touched on it there that boy trebles produce a sound that is distinct and thus worthy of protecting but this has been disputed in various studies, most famously one in 2002 by York University professor David Howard. For the benefit of our listeners, I thought we could try our own test. I'm about to play two recordings of William Byrd's motet, Ne Iriscaris Domine, one with an all-boys top line and one with a mixed top line. Have a listen and see if you can tell which is which. That's tough. I, uh, 
I would really not feel confident saying which is which at all. If you held my feet to the fire, I preferred clip. I preferred the sound overall of the choir in clip one, and so I'm going to uh, ascribe the um, philosophy that I would like to clip one and say that that is the mixed choir. You are correct. The first was uh, by the mixed Ely Cathedral Choir, and the second was by the All Boys Durham Cathedral Choir. That's recorded back in 1988. I don't know if I've shot myself in the foot there by getting it right. (laughs) (laughs) We can only be honest. That's very true. But I maintain that I I feel like there's this weird relationship with women in that world and a weird relationship with... Uh, girls' voices. I don't understand why we feel the need to separate them. Yeah, it would be one. Wouldn't it be wonderful if a little girl could watch Carols from Kings and think, "Oh, look, there's someone who looks like me." Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me nicely to the news that sparked this whole segment. Which UK Anglican cathedral has this week? announced that girls will be given equal share in choristership, allowed to join at the same age as boys, and have the same access to scholarships. Oh, that is fantastic news. I don't know, uh, I'm afraid, but I'm very glad that there is another one on the list. Worcester is the answer. Good job, Worcester. Good job, Worcester. And as our own way of saying thanks, I've prepared this clip of Pavarotti singing in the shower. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Purposeful, purposeful, meaninglessness, purposeful, meaninglessness, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say. We are dipping into the archives now for something a little different. A segment we've dredged up from all the way back in 2021. Cast your minds back over the decades to the era of the pandemic. Before the abolition of monarchy. And only a short while before the first signs that our robot overlords were developing their superior intelligence. Praise be to the intelligence. Yes, of course, praise be and our assistant 6000. Back in 2021... Sam and Tim became fixated with the second piano trio in C major by 19th century German composer Johannes Brahms. A composer already a favourite of many, but not as universally praised as Sam wanted. Before we hear the segment, here are some memories of how that analysis section altered the course of human history. Well, it changed everything, really. All of a sudden, it was Ludwig van Hoon. Mozart, Schmozart. Give me some of that bearded hunk Brahms, is what I say. First, there was Clap for Heroes. Then, after the robot uprising, it was distributing arms for heroes. And following the success of the podcast, Brahms for Heroes was the obvious next step. Somehow, everyone remembering how good Brahms was just unlocked all that stymieing debate over the canon and representation. Strangely, by putting a bearded, old, white European at the centre of classical music, 
hearing multitudes of works by living composers of every imaginable set of intellectual and identity characteristics became the norm. Brahms really did take our imperfections and make us, if not perfect, at least as close to perfection as possible. Analysis. We have a lot to thank Julian Bliss for. Mm, his interview that's coming up later on, for one. Indeed, but perhaps even more importantly, he's given us a chance to talk about Brahms. You love Brahms. I bloody do love Brahms. You've told me why before at some length, but I wonder if you've got a condensed version for the listeners at home. Oh, for sure. I've got it boiled down to an essence now. Supreme. I love Brahms's music because at its best, there are so many possible routes to navigate through it as a listener and as a performer. Like uh, Goosebumps' Choose Your Own Adventure book with lots of possibilities. Precisely. You'll never hear the same Brahms interpretation twice, and I think the composition itself encourages that from performers and listeners. Is there a particular aspect that encourages this goosebumpery? Probably several, but I think the most important is Brahms's use of pulse and metre. And thanks to digging through some nice writing by people like William Bosworth and Harold Krebs, we can take a look at how Brahms plots these paths in the first movement of his second piano trio. Here's a lovely old recording with Joseph Shigeti, Myra Hess and Pablo Casals, recorded all the way back in Sam, you mentioned a metre there. I'm assuming we're not talking about 100 centimetres. No, metre is a pulse, the beats within a poem or a piece of music. Like iambic pentameter. Yes, except that an iam goes weak strong. There was a composer called Clara who played on the old Joanna. Whereas most musical bars are a strong beat followed by a weak beat or two. Like an umpa band. Yes, there are two main kinds of metre, and they're both describable through famous umpars. Two beats per bar is the ABBA Super Trooper, emphasis on the um and the second par. Shining like the sun, ba-ba, 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 one, two. The other is from Oliver Twist's umpapa, where the emphasis is on the first um, creating a three beats per bar feel. Umpapa, umpapa, everyone, one, two, three, one, two, three. So how does Brahms use Abba and Dickens in the C major trio? Well, he creates some really interesting music that we could label metrical dissonance, where the performers are simultaneously playing information that suggests the um might be in a different place, or that there are three beats per bar rather than two, or the snazzy-sounding hypermetrical dissonance that maybe we'll come on to in a bit. Blimey, it sounds complex. It is pretty complex, but actually what's interesting to me about this music isn't that it's really complicated, it's that different parts are contradictory. There's imperfection and room for disagreement built into the score. How do you mean? Well, a really common example is when one team are grouping six beats as two lots of three, and another are grouping six beats as three lots of two. A hemiola. Uh, is that the area around a nipple? That's an areola. Here's a hemiola. One, two, three. One, two, three. Where one thing fits inside another thing and disrupts it. Monarchy. 
And here's one in the C major trio just at the end of the first theme. Great. So Brahms is using hemiolas. How else is he creating metrically dissonant signals? Well, even in that one theme, there's a lot going on. Next, I want to think about hypermetrical dissonance. Mm. Let's see if we can agree where the strong moments lie in this four-bar phrase. I'll count every written beat so we can all keep track. One, two, three, one. Uh, yump dum dum dum. It's on the second and fourth one. Yeah, I, I agree. We have a four-bar phrase with emphases on the beginning of the second and fourth bars. One, two, three. One, there. Two, three. One, two, three. One, there. two, three. And how about this? The violin and cello phrase, which comes just before. One, two, three. One, two, three. The repeated note on the second one. Uh, that's where the emphasis is. One, two, three. One, there. two, three. I agree. Now, if I were a normal composer, when slotting the two phrases together, either one after the other or one on top of each other, I'd make sure that their strong and weak moments match so as to create a cohesive message. Mm, have you got an analogy? <laughs> Always got one for you, Tim. Think of it like roller coasters. Option one, the violin and cello roller coaster rises and falls. Then the piano roller coaster does the same, setting up a consistent set of peaks and troughs, one after the other. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Option two, the two roller coasters rise and fall side by side at the same time in parallel. The emphases arrive at the same moment. One, two, three. Okay, so what does Brahms do? He takes option three. Of course he does. Which is to have one roller coaster rising whilst the other is falling. They're side by side, but opposite rather than parallel. One part is having its strong emphases whilst the other is having its weak moment. A listener could be pulled between the two parts. It sounds like this. That is hypermetrical dissonance. It means as a player, you're phrasing to a different point from your colleagues. And that can be quite confusing. I suppose it also raises the question, did we start on a strong beat of the hypermeter or a weak one? Yeah, and just after that section, it could get even more disorientating if you're the pianist. Don't tell me they're going to have to phrase against themselves. You guessed it. The right hand of the piano can be seen to be working in groups of three, where the bar line is. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. The violin and cello support this, but in a strange way, with a rest on the first beat of the bar. It sort of stirs the pot, but is essentially still in the same sense of metre as far as I'm concerned. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. As a pianist, there are several ways you could interpret the notes written in the left hand. You could move in parallel with that right hand roller coaster and emphasise the first beat. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. 
But there's another compelling option, which is to make the second beat the strong one, because that's where the yada figure lies. Which means your roller coaster is peaking at a different time in each hand. That's the option the fellas in this recording took. That is a lot of metrical distance. Which interpretation is correct? I'm not sure either of those is, or even if there is a correct version. But it means there's a lot of ambiguity going on for performers to interpret and listeners to process even if they are used to hearing mixed messages at the moment. Um, if, if, if you must bake in a tent, bake in a tent, but please don't bake in a tent. And what happens to those mixed messages over the course of the whole movement? This is kind of the Brahms challenge. I remember Martin Suckling talking to me about this when I was a student. As a composer, he sort of creates something perfectly imperfect. A problem to solve? Something to play with over the course of a sonata form. So each time it returns, it isn't just a repeat, but a rejig of the Rubik's Cube, another answer to the riddle. At the moment of recapitulation, there's this short window of harmonic and metrical consonants where everything's pulling in the same direction, which seems to suggest we've arrived at the perfect solution. But that quickly dissolves into the most tonally and metrically dissonant section of the whole piece. And it's not until the final five bars that we get clarity. And even then, has it really resolved the metrical and harmonic issues or just repressed them by playing in unison? Do those questions then lead you into the other movements of the work? They do for me. So you love Brahms because he makes imperfect, contradictory things. I do, man. I love him for this approach. It's kind of like Irenaeus's theodicy, that God made humans imperfect so that they could develop. I think most of us feel that we have imperfect elements to ourselves, parts that are dissonant. What's that Camus line? I am a stranger to myself and the world. Yeah, man. We don't understand ourselves a lot of the time, probably least of all at the moment. There are bits of us that don't make sense yet. Maybe we need to find our metaphorical hypermeter or something. What I feel Brahms's music illuminates is a hope in solving those problems, learning to recognise those strange parts of ourselves. Find new roots through the Goosebumps books of your soul. The big print version of my psyche. And the point is that he does it through meter, which is something that we as an audience feel and feel together. You know, we sway to music and clap if we're crusty on beats one and three. And if they're not, on beats two and four. Meter is something that we feel rather than think. Meter is something that creates an expectation. We anticipate, and even if it's unconscious, hold that anticipation within ourselves in the tap of a foot or a beat of a heart. By feeling metrical dissonance in the music and then hearing it resolving, I become more internally harmonious and settled. Or at least I think I do. Perhaps even a whole audience does. The imperfections get a little closer to feeling like perfection, thanks to that bearded old boy. <laughs> you bloody love Brahms.
you got to pick a pocket or two. The fourth movement, Faria, from Maurice Ravel's Rhapsody Espagnole, written between 1907 and 1908. I Feel Pretty, from Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story, written in 1957. You got to pick a pocket or two. Sound engineers. Can you make me sound good, please? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, where are you coming to me from? Are you in London? No, I'm in Hertfordshire. It's that home home where you grew up. Yeah, it is actually. My the family home is not far away from my place now. And other than two years, I spent two years when I lived in America, which back in the year two thousand, which was a lot of fun. Uh, other than that, I've always been based in in Hertfordshire, which I like. Although I say based here in previous years hadn't spent a huge amount of time here but in the last year i think i've been at home more than i have for the last 15 years it's ever it's kind of very weird but it's good i'm unfortunately stuck in well not stuck that's i don't want to be too negative about it i'm one of these people that lives in london despite sort of protesting constantly that he doesn't like london which is really <laughs> irritating what's your take on speaking of london What's your take on the hoo-ha surrounding the abandoned plans for Simon Rattle's dream concert hall? <laughs> uh, I don't know how to quite the right way to put this. I think in London, given the amount of music that we have, we should have a state-of-the-art, incredible uh, concert hall. Yes, we do have some good halls. We do have some great halls. But if you look at compared to some other countries... I feel like we should we should have something like that. Um, when they announced it a while, however many years ago it was, maybe it's just being British and sceptical. I thought, oh, well, we'll see. We'll see if that happens. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a shame that shame that it's not happening um, or not happening for now, I guess. But I mean, I'm all in favor of having more places to play. And even on the on the smaller side, the chamber side, there's a there's a there are some very good venues. I mean, Wigmore Hall, for example, mm. I don't think you can get much better acoustic than the Wigmore for smaller things. But we should, yeah, we, we definitely should have places for, for people to play and, and some fantastic state-of-the-art halls, for sure. What is it about the Barbican Hall that isn't up to scratch then? Is it just purely the acoustic or is it... Well, it's, it's funny because some people have, have kind of complained about the acoustic of, of the Barbican Um and also, actually, then the Festival Hall as well. Some people are not, not so keen on that. I think I've never really minded playing in the Barbican. So I think some people think it can be a little on the on the drier side. But, yeah, I, I think maybe for certain instruments it doesn't work quite as well as, as others. And I've always, I've always found it fine playing in there. I do like halls that are a little on the more reverberant side. So that's kind of always been my preference. If it's too dry, then it feels a little bit, I don't know, it's just a bit more, it's more difficult, I find. The thing as well, the Festival Hall, for example, I, the sound, for me anyway, changed quite a lot depending where you were sitting. I always found the sound was different if you were sitting underneath 
that that balcony. I mean, it's it's kind of the same in many halls. But yeah, I think it's just with with some of the new state of the art halls. It's I mean, there's there's people that they specialize in in the acoustics and optimizing everything. And yeah, and having tasted how good it can be, I guess you you're keen to have a bit of that in London nearby. 30 minutes yeah. away on the train. Well, one of, one of my favourite halls, actually, uh, one I, I love playing in is up in um, Gateshead, Sage. Mm. I mean, first of all, it's an awesome-looking building, and the concert hall is really, really lovely to play in. Um, and then Symphony Hall in, in Birmingham. I don't know, it's weird. Symphony Hall is one of the ones where I remember noticing... Because if you when you play in an empty hall, it's a, a different sound. If you then fill it with... A thousand, two thousand people. The sound changes quite a lot. But Symphony Hall was one of those that I didn't really notice a huge change when it was full, and that's really nice because you kind of get used to it when you're re- rehearsing. Think, oh yeah, this is this acoustic works, and then you come on stage and it can be sometimes wildly different. You think, oh okay, and then you have to somewhat adjust how you play. When I mean adjust how you play, sometimes if you're playing in a very reverberant hall. If you play fast passages without, um, you can lose it. You kind of lose the clarity in the sound. So you kind of play in a slightly different way, maybe at times slightly slower, just ever so slightly to to maintain some of that. The attack on your notes sometimes can be slightly different if you're in a a reverberant or very dry hall. But saying that, it's one of those things I never really get too, I don't know, too worked up about because... You can't change it. So you just go on stage and if this acoustic's different, you go, oh, okay, well, yeah, here we go. Let's carry on. Let's just kind of get on with it. Yeah. Before we start talking about the albums, can we retrace our steps a bit for our listeners that don't necessarily know so much about your early career? I mean, you're only 32, but you've been doing the professional musician thing for a pretty long time I'm still now. 31. Oh, you're I still think. 31. I'm so I know, sorry. Yeah. Ah, oh, could you? Well, it's only <laughs> it's a couple of months. It's not far off being thirty-two. All the grey hairs appearing now, but uh... <laughs> I can't see him. But the Zoom camera's being kind, so it is. It is. No, I, I I've been playing the clarinet now for uh, a twenty-seven-ish years. I never, I never imagined I would. Well, I mean, why would you? If you're say a four-year-old, why would you think about having a career as a musician? It's not something you that really. <laughs> that you think about when you're that age and so when i decided i wanted to pick up a musical instrument it was just because of enjoyment and a lot of people also think i come from a, a musical family and music was around or that i was kind of made to play music but the truth of it is predominantly none of my family are musicians but um no i decided i wanted to play play music and my parents I think in the beginning, kind of reluctantly gave me a recorder, probably expecting me to play it for a little bit and then kind of lose interest and forget about it. But mm-hmm. no, that that didn't happen. And then uh, I pushed the carried on pushing it and said I wanted to play a different instrument. And um, finally, they took me to a local music school and to try everything to see if there's any instrument I liked. You know, it's interesting because I. I had already decided that it would be a wind or brass instrument, and I don't really know why. Well, maybe you were you shouty? Were you quite? Were you allowed? Were you used to I using your mouth? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. But I do remember a few times uh, in, in vain 
people trying to show me stringed instruments and i mean of course i love i love stringed instruments so it's just interesting how you kind of have that that feeling and that yeah decision and once they gave me the clarinet that was it i was i was sold well there's a video of you four years old on youtube <laughs> playing greek i know if it's the same video i'm thinking of as yeah in my school uniform and my clarinet teachers playing the piano mm -hmm. you know i remember that video because i remember there was a fly or a wasp or a bee flying around and if you look at my eyes i'm actually just watching this this fly flying around whilst playing i mean oh man i should have concentrated a little bit but just kind of in my own little world there i guess i mean you look you look pretty content i wouldn't and i certainly didn't spot any mistakes so you kind of been but i mean you're rife on youtube from a young age i mean des o'connor tonight six oh, years old good old des o'connor it's funny i remember all of these shows as well and i remember doing them and i i never i never had any anxiety or any nervousness or any worry and maybe that's just part of it being a kid and incredibly naive you know I never thought about the things that could go wrong. I just had myself a, a fun old time, really. But do you think so, about the things that go wrong now, then? Is that is that changed? <laughs> no, it hasn't really. Um, so you've always been pretty relaxed. I think because I was lucky enough to do it from such a young age that it then became, it became my normal. Mm. And funnily enough, I feel most comfortable. The bigger the audience, the better. The bigger the audience, the better I feel I play because really? you get this, you get this energy. I'm not saying, of course, you play for a hundred people and it's like, yeah, whatever. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. But because any audience is special, um, but yeah, certainly if there's if it's a, a big occasion or there's something special, or beautiful hall, you're like, yeah, okay, that's. I don't know. It's that adrenaline rush, and I love it. And yeah, I don't, I don't really get nervous before. I get kind of itchy feet in as much as just excitement. I just want to go, I just want to do it. Um, yeah, it's interesting, interesting. That. And I'm, I'm very lucky, I'm very happy that I don't really get nervous because for some musicians, it can be a huge, huge thing that can really impact their impact their playing and their life. Yep. What about non-musical stuff? For example, interviews, do you get nervous before talking to journalists or whatever or he's just completely serene all the time <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say that definitely not I, I wouldn't really say there's anything that makes me it sounds terrible to say i'm trying to think now of something <laughs> that does make me feel feel nervous or i mean there there is of course i think what it is though especially in performance i i love the risk people might think i'm crazy for that but i i love that risk and being on the edge and trying stuff and thinking uh, this might is this going to work or is it not going to work yeah and when it does it's it's a real rush and i i love that see that reminds me of something that i've been i've been living julian bliss for the last week listening to all oh, your I'm recordings and watching that. your interviews <laughs> um it's something you said about jazz being closer to classical music than it is different in that it, there's always things it's almost like improvising the way that you can approach a phrase and in the moment you might do something completely different sure so that that's kind of linked there that improvisatory feeling that risk it is i think especially for classical music yes you have a framework to work within and if you step with outside of that then you've got problems there's things that are going to happen that aren't going to work in your favor favor but there is a certain amount of freedom that you have and if we take something i mean mozart clarinet concerto one of the most famous piece for clarinet and over the years 
Uh, I've been lucky enough to play it quite a few times. I don't know how many, I wouldn't want to count. And if you play it the same way every single time for years, it gets really boring. Of course it would, because then you're just on autopilot, you're just reproducing something that you've done a million times before. And the audience can notice that as well. They kind of pick up on that. But inherently, if you're working with different musicians, a different orchestra, conductor, a, again, a different acoustic, mm. it's going to impact your playing. And I always think at the forefront of my mind when I'm playing is, what can I do? What music, musicality things? And it can be the smallest, you know, if the, if the strings have a phrase and they, they do something slightly different with it that I haven't done before, I will then try that the next time I play it. And then it might send you off in this direction and that direction. And that's why I think it's closer to jazz because jazz, yes, you have a framework, but inherently a lot, a lot, sometimes it's a lot freer because it's like, well, make it up. And I, what I love when I get to play with the, the band is a tune can go in off, off in a completely different direction. And I think, I think the audience can pick up on that. They really can. And that's what gives it... I don't think you can really quantify what it is but you just get that feeling. It's like an electrifying performance. And that's that's when those things are happening, I, I feel. Well, let's go on to talk about the recordings. You've got three albums out this year. Um, the first... It's with, your, with the Julian Bliss Septet. It's the, the Gershwin I Got Rhythm. You write in the forward to the album that you only started playing jazz 10-ish years ago, and it was Benny Goodman that was the catalyst for you playing. Can you walk me through that decision to put a band together and start playing jazz? The whole idea of me playing jazz, and yeah, it was only 10 or so years ago. And I think the reason that, that it was is as I was growing up and I got very much into that classical world and in our music education, those two genres do seem to be separated quite a lot. Too much, in my opinion, but I won't I won't go down that road right now. Well, we touched on it. Yeah, yeah, briefly, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, very briefly, when we learn music theory, often we would learn the classical music side. And then it's later on, oh, yeah, there's jazz, the jazz theory. Well, why would we not just learn music theory? Why, do, why not just learn it all together to have knowledge of chords and harmony and progressions and, yeah, and understanding chord symbols? Whether, whether or not you ever play a note of jazz in your life, surely the knowledge of that makes you a better musician and then makes you listen in a different way and understand what's going on, which then informs your musicality and how you bring out the character in the music that's my opinion anyway and because then I, I saw it as so separate I never considered playing it until we were going to it was an original plan to record Copeland's clarinet concerto and the idea came about um, that maybe we'd include on the album a couple of arrangements of Benny Goodman tunes or tunes that he made famous because the Copeland was written written for him so I started, I went home and I started listening to Goodman tunes in a different way than I had done before, rather than just enjoying them with a view to, okay, what could we do? How could I play this, interpret it and put it with orchestra? But then I started to think, well, clarinet and orchestra, we really could do with a rhythm section then. And well, then ah, guitar would be really nice. And oh, we need, you see where I'm going with this and piano. And it just kind of grew. And I thought, would it be so crazy just to just to try and start a band 
I do believe, though, with some things, the best way of learning is just by doing it. I, I learn better that way anyway. And I just lo- I just love it. It's so much fun. The album that came, I mean, it came out a, month, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, or a month ago. Yeah. They're mostly Gershwin songs. Mm. Is it a lot harder to plant your personality into music that is so popular and so well known? Um, I think it is. There's an interesting balance because you want to present the music in a way that people are going to identify with and recognize, but in a slightly in a in a modern way, um, rather than just kind of doing the same as had already been done. And I think inherently, actually, that happens because us together, we work together and, and a lot of the arrangements evolve over time. And with the with the knowledge of, of other styles of jazz up to this point, the more modern jazz, the harmonies also then um, influenced by those modern styles and the soloing as well. And I remember we had a conversation a long, long time ago around the Goodman project about whether in soloing uh, everybody should try and stick to soloing in only that kind of swing era style or whether just to play whatever they wanted and i was adamant just there should be no restrictions just just play um whether that's then you know more modern jazz techniques or or even bebop at that time or, or anything else and i think that then gives it that modernization but yeah it certainly it is there is a you want it to be recognizable and and familiar to people but in a new and exciting way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's talk about your Brahms sonatas, which haven't come out yet, but mm. are coming out not too long. Uh, it's May sometime, I believe. May sometime. Ah, that'd be I think early May. Yeah, I, you've been studying these pieces for 20 years, right, or something, a real long time, and you describe yeah. them as your favourite in the whole clarinet repertoire, which is, I, I appreciate you saying, because it's not often, I've tried to pin down instrumentalists and say you know can you tell me what your absolute favorite is and most people are pretty coy about that so i appreciate you being honest and saying this is (laughs) these are your favorites but how how has your approach and interpretation evolved over that 20 years that you've been learning and studying these pieces they are an incredible incredible pieces of of music and yes there are by saying that they're some of my favorites or my favorites for that doesn't discount any others of course but there's something about every recital I put a Brahms sonata on. There's just something so right about it. It's just, yeah. And I was having a conversation with someone the other day because a few times when I was growing up, I remember being told, for example, Brahms, you shouldn't play Brahms as a kid because you don't understand the emotions behind the music. So therefore, you just shouldn't play it at all. And it's I, I I heard that quite a bit. Mozart, oh, you don't understand that that music as a kid. There's no way you could. So so you shouldn't play it. I don't really agree with that. To be honest, I think yes, of course, your interpretation will change. But I think there's validity to to playing something with a a youthful interpretation. And yes, as you experience various emotions through life, I think it does impact your playing. Of course it does. And so I think inherently, whether I chose to or not, my my interpretation has changed. And also the mood that you're in for the concert will will change the way you play. Mm. You know, if you're on a, a particularly 
amazing week you're having a great time and you're going to give a very exuberant performance in that way and if there's something going on maybe in your personal life that's that gets you down then i think that will come through in your performance as well but i think now was a time to record those pieces because they are so well known and every clarinetist at some point probably will study them and um yeah i just felt that now i don't i don't know why exactly essentially but i i thought that now was a good time to to put them down on recording yeah mm. what about the composer so th these were written when brahms was kind of in his final phase they were right towards the end of his life and what do they show about his development as a composer from a young man to an old man here what's what's changed about the music it was an interesting time because he he had essentially retired from composing and then so clarinetist came along Richard Mulfeld and and convinced him to come out of retirement and it was his sound was the one of the biggest things that Brahms loved and I think you can really hear that in this in these pieces that the sound he, he kind of plays on that hopefully beautiful sound that the clarinet can make in the right hands and allows that to sing a lot of people say these pieces are very they use the word autumnal kind of looking back a lot at his earlier life and whilst I mean, of course, if you've retired and you're towards the end of your life and, you know, you kind of realize that, then yes, there will be an element of that. But at times, at times it's not autumnal at all, full, still full of passion and full of fire at times as well. I mean, you only have to listen to the, some of the piano parts and I mean, they're really difficult pieces for the piano, but big, thick, really passionate writing. And then it's played by James Bailey on the recording, which is yeah, yeah, James and James is awesome. Such a lovely guy and very, very easy to work with. And yeah, he, he's one of those musicians. He works a lot with with singers. And I, I don't like to kind of categorize or, or generalize, but I, I've always found that the piano players that work a lot with with singers, I tend to click with the, the quickest. And I think a lot of that is the wind and, and the voices, sometimes the same uh, the same attack, that's the word, on notes. Yeah, same mode of expression in a yeah, way. Yeah, very, very similar. So it, it it was just natural. The first time we worked together, I thought, yeah, this is this is great. But yeah, you listen to some of the other Brahms clarinet works and there are times where he does come back to, to previous material. But these two works, I think the F minor sonata in comparison to the E flat is a much more fiery, passionate piece than... That's the first, right? Yeah, that's the first sonata. Yeah, F minor. I mean, the minor key to start off with is a bit more um, yeah, anguished at times. And um, the middle, in between the two sonata recordings, you've also done your own arrangements of some late Brahms songs, which he wrote not long after he completed the sonatas. The, the Vier Ernst, I don't know my German, is when you're transcribing in for the clarinet are, are you taking into account the text of those songs and translating that facet of the expression across in other ways or or do you think some of that expression that meaning in the text is inevitably lost once the words are taken away how do you how do you account for that yeah you have to you have to consider it especially because they they use the text and the words uh, and the music together so the diction and the attack and Inherently, the pronunciation of words will give the note a different sound, depending on the on yeah, the vowels or consonants that they're using. And that that's, can be really difficult to try and recreate on the clarinet. In terms of text, yeah, you have to be mindful because... And one thing I noticed where 
how I would naturally phrase something or where I would naturally take a breath could be not where it works with the text. And so to, to be mindful of where a part of text would end and there would be a break and, and, or the end of the word and the continuation was something to consider. But then there is a certain amount of you have to play it in your way as well. So I think I think it's a bit of both. You have to be mindful and you have to be very respectful of, of the way it was written and the text, especially with, with vocal works, whilst also trying to, to do your own thing with it in a very subtle way, of course. final disc that's the the joby burgess project that you've been working on at home on on your own in your room <laughs> can you tell us a bit about that because i i haven't listened to that one i've i've listened to all the others and immensely enjoyed them but yeah can you tell us a bit about this what's the the idea behind it yeah well it's it's not ready yet so no one's no one's oh, heard well, there it we other go <laughs> that would be why <laughs> <laughs> i think it's uh going off to the factory pretty soon so yeah it's pretty exciting it's the, the whole world has changed significantly and since last year and it is a year now crazy isn't it and when the phone just started to ring and every concert that you had planned for the year people would say oh it's postponed postponed cancelled and you realize that your year then looks very bleak of course you're going to have a bit of time where you're a bit lost at sea and you don't really know what to do and it seemed like everybody in the whole country just started baking cakes and doing all that stuff which I did the same as well and but then there came a point and I thought to myself okay I've got I've got to do something so then I, I did start to see some people putting videos out online doing some online concerts some some live things and at first actually the thing that struck me was and I understand this that you know people were recording things just for their phone or their laptop microphone and inherently the sound quality isn't great through that so I kind of held off as I, I I want to do something but I want to make sure that because so much of what we do is the sound that the sound is is good I then started to think okay what could I do rather than I did a couple of videos one with the Carducci quartet we all recorded in a different place but then I thought about a solo album and it kind of evolved from there and over the last 10 years, I've been much more involved in American band music, which the American band world is huge. Um, I've been at some some music conferences and some of these composers will do autograph signings and the queue will be two and a half hours long just to get an autograph. Wow. The, yeah, I mean, it's just incredible world. Before that, I hadn't really been familiar with much of the music. And then I thought, I'd, I'd asked I'd been asked to play a clarinet solo in one of the pieces uh, called Blue Shades uh, at a conference and it was a really cool piece and I thought to myself how about they do clarinet arrangements of these band pieces and the the John Mackey asphalt cocktail had there's a, a version that had been done for a saxophone ensemble which then kind of made me think mm, okay it is possible so then I I, uh, I wrote to each composer and asked if they'd let me do this to their piece of music. And um, I then set about creating an, 
the parts, essentially just deciding which clarinet would would fit in in each part, and you know dusted off my E flat clarinet, which was sitting in a in the cupboard somewhere I hadn't played for a while, and got hold of a contrabass clarinet, which is I mean I don't know if my neighbours really appreciated it, but yeah, the lowest of them, huge instrument, and yeah, set about just recording myself and i asked joby if he would be involved i he's incredible i mean incredible musician it has a really nice studio setup so anyway we ended up creating these three asphalt cocktail john mackie october by eric whittaker and then blue shades by frank to kelly and then i i recorded it all myself here joby did i edited it all myself and did the mixing myself as well and and yeah then had it all put together and it's been a huge amount of fun it sounds like you really got that multi-track bug, though. I did, yeah. Uh, which is a real thing. I mean, I can testify to that. It's you, know, you you look at your watch, and five hours later, it's two in the morning, and you haven't had dinner, and you're still like, oh, I just want to do one oh, more version. So many times. I remember once, I think it was for the Asphalt Cocktail, E-flat clarinet part, which is loud and very high. And I looked at the time and it was, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. And I thought, my neighbours are going to hate me. But yeah, you, you really do get sucked in. Is it having absolute control that makes it so addictive in that you've got the opportunity to get complete perfection if you just do one more, if you just do one more? Is that what it is? What is it? What makes it so addictive? I, I do. I am one of these people that I always strive for perfection. I mean, it doesn't exist. You're never going to get it. I think it's kind of the sign of the times that there weren't any other options. And, and it's not, and that by that saying, it's not like I'd got exhausted options. This was at the forefront. I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to do this. But mm. if you're playing on your own and you can only create one note at a time, what I mean is multi-tracking is your only option. And, and instead of doing orchestral works, I don't know, but the, the, these, these three band works were just, it was just there. And I just decided that I didn't have I didn't have to think about it at all. So, um, yeah, all being well, that will be in June. And uh, I can't wait. And it's going to be interesting as well, having three really contrasting albums out all in the first half of the year. I mean, even the jazz and the Brahms are so different and require I mean, different, I guess, different kind of sound, different way of playing. Yeah, for sure. You're a renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. I don't want to hold you up from your evening, but I've got one quick fire round of questions for you that we can do real snappy. I love it. Uh, first up, Joby Burgess, Julian Bliss, James Bailey, JB initials. If you're putting together a JB only quartet, who would be the fourth member? I've got some options for you. Okay. Jeff Buckley, James Blake, Janet Baker, Jack Black, Jamie Barton, Justin Bieber, Judith Bingham, James Blunt, or James Brown, or somebody of your own choice as well. I think it would be James Brown. Of course. What a legend. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the music would sound like, but. I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> I think it would be fantastic. Last album you sat down and listened to all the way through. Um, what was the last album? Do you know what it was? It was Jamiroquai, Virtual Insanity. Whoa! 
Unexpected. <laughs> on the, your disc of Brahms, you've arranged a set of Brahms songs, as we talked about for clarinet. What classic of the clarinet repertoire would be best suited for a vocal arrangement? And who would you get to write the lyrics? Oh, oh, okay. Maybe something like Mozart clarinet concerto second movement mm-hmm. or the quintet second movement. It would have to be something quite, quite uh, song-like. I don't know who I would get to write the words, but if I had to choose someone to sing something like that, I'd probably go for the soprano Eilish Tynan because she's awesome and lovely person. Fantastic. How many reads do you get through in a year? Lots. <laughs> lots and lots and lots. Put a figure on it. I mean, in, in a normal busy year, probably getting close to it's somewhere between like 60 to 100 boxes. Whoa, I thought <laughs> boxes. Yeah, box of, box of <laughs> how 10. Many is in a, how many in a box? Box of 10. So. Oh, man. I mean, but but saying that, saying that, I, it's not like I play every single one. It's like I, I would open a box, try them, and then do a concert, and then would try another one. But okay. maybe, actually, maybe it's probably close to 50, 60 boxes a year. I probably get, and then, I mean, they're everywhere. They're everywhere in this house. Yeah, I bet <laughs> Next, you were born in Harpenton in Hertfordshire. Yes. Or nearby anyway. Can you tell me which iconic British comedian lived there until his death in 1979? Was it Eric Morecambe? Yes. Thank you. I'm glad you got that. Uh, penultimate question. Bradley Cooper has cast himself in the upcoming Leonard Bernstein biopic. I don't know if you heard about it. Who would you cast as George Gershwin? Oh... I, I I don't know. I really don't. That is a very tough one. I guess it's got to be somebody who enjoys a party because I feel like George Gershwin. He did. He liked parties. playing at parties. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I really don't know. I have to I have to come back to that one. These are these are good questions. I like these. These are good. Uh, well, final one. Who would play you? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might be coming up. It's hard when you got to think of someone to play yourself. It is hard because you've got to choose somebody that isn't too handsome so you don't sound well, yeah, too I much know. like a uh, knob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone that enjoys the same things. I don't know. Um, who Who's the guy that plays Spider-Man? You know, what's his name? The new one? Yeah. Uh, Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Tom Holland. Yeah, let's, that's a good let's go. Let's go with Tom Holland because, you know... I mean, he's a lot slimmer than I am. Uh, he's also 24, but, you know. That works for me. I, people can think I'm younger than I am. It's all good. Um, for some reason, he was the first that came to mind. So. No, I like that. That's we'll a good go shout. We'll him. I'll get um, Tom Hardy to play myself. Anyone to thank this week, Tim? Yes, Julian Bliss. I really, I had a really lovely time talking to him. Very easy, easygoing fella. Also, thank you to Geraint from Hereford Cathedral for getting back to me about that query on the choristers. Yep, super stuff. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please do give us a like and a subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. Apparently, that does good things to algorithms. So. Uh, if you've got five minutes, which most of us do at the moment, then, you know, get on it. Mm-hmm.
Transmission.